This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Jack McDowell, 68T, pitcher for my beloved Chicago White Sox. Okay, Jack McDowell. Really looking forward to this one. But David, before we begin, we do have some follow-up from last week's episode. Last week's episode about Ty Griffin included a reference to Billy Champion, one of the best-named scouts that we've come across. And we talked about how Billy Champion went on to be a pitching coach in the minor leagues and the CPBL in Taiwan. So after we tweeted about this, at GoCPBL, CPBL Stats on Twitter, said, here's one of my favorite Billy Champion CPBL memories. He said there was a pitcher who refused to get off the mound, so Bill used his belly to bump him off the mound and diffused the on-field tension between him and that player, and both of them started laughing after that. (laughs) Great use of the gut by Billy Champion. Too bad the Cubs did not have the same kind of skill in using Ty Griffin's talents as Billy Champion had in finding Ty Griffin and in using his belly. Now on to this week's card and Jack McDowell. And David, Jack was suggested by a listener. Jack McDowell came recommended by my childhood friend, Adam. And Adam and I probably met in Cub Scouts around 1988 maybe 1989, and remained friends through high school and uh, and now on Facebook as well. We used to go to a lot of shows together uh, to see some punk rock music in, in the 1990s. He also said that he was listening to the episode where we talked about Alan Thicke, and he said that he ended up watching the video, the of course, the Sweaty and Hot video, which oh, yeah. you know gets you put on a watch list. <laughs> and he said that he was not disappointed... But he was mad at us for having to spend a considerable amount of the day thinking about the non-ironic appeal of Alan Thicke's anthem, Sweaty and Hot. Adam is a Cubs fan. He said that it pained him to suggest a non-Cubs player, but he thought that it that Jack McDowell had uh, a music career that would be of some interest in the pod. And he also thought that because Jack played for the 1990s White Sox that I might have some particularly fond memories of Jack McDowell. So thank you very much, Adam, for the suggestion of Jack McDowell. Excited to dig into this one. I'm just thrilled that Alan Thicke references on this show have inspired such creativity in the listeners. It certainly inspired a lot in me. You know, Jack McDowell had a music career along with his baseball career does his songwriting live up to the the high standards set by alan thick i think we'll dig into that a little bit later we shall see jack's persona was slightly different than alan thick's where alan thick was known as the tv dad i think the lasting image for me of jack mcdowell is wearing the black white Sox cap he was called black jack mcdowell because he had the scowl on his face. He looked like a gunslinger. Uh, Hawk Harrelson named him that. And this fresh-faced young man on the front of this card does not look like the goateed grunge rocker of the early 90s. 
Certainly not. So let's get to the front of this card of 68T. And here we have we have Jack McDowell looking looks 19 years old, I'd say. Not far off. He was 21. So he he definitely looks his age here. Looks like a kid who's just getting called up, which is what he is. He's wearing he's wearing a mesh top, you know, a spring training kind of top. He's got the blue socks hat that just has a C on it and a red bill. I'm not sure I've seen this hat before, David. It's not one that is often worn. They don't do a throwback day to this mid-80s. I think on the Greg Walker episode, I lamented this jersey because they went from the block letter socks to the script black and white. And in between it, wedged in there for a few years, was this script C, which I think people now look back and say was a good jersey, but I don't like it. I, I, you know, I don't like that hat. I don't own one of those, which I own a lot of hats, but I, I don't want that one. Yeah, not the best for sure. And in the background of the card, it really is just open blue sky. This could be anywhere, anywhere in America, any place. There's nothing going on to tell what's, what's happening here. This is just, hey kid, look over here and don't smile. Click. <laughs> but again, well lit. These tops traded cards, I think the brightness of them, they're a little bit glossier look than the regular set. Yeah, he looks good. Perfectly fine. Flipping to the back of 68T, Jack McDowell, 6'5", 179. Right-handed thrower and batter, drafted by the White Sox in the first round, June 1987. Born January 16th, 1966 in Van Nuys, California. Jack was the youngest of three kids. He had two older brothers who were seven and eight years older than him. So he said that as a little one, he would run around behind his older brothers, and that helped him get better at baseball trying to catch up with those older brothers. He would you know, try to hit their pitches when they were much older and bigger than he was. He ended up going to Notre Dame High in Sherman Oaks, California. Sherman Oaks named for General Moses Hazelton Sherman. Another fantastic name. He could he could be a scout in this set. He was a land developer and rail developer in Arizona and L.A. Other alumni of Notre Dame High include Rami Malek, Dave Navarro, John Carlos Stanton, Ed Begley Jr., Jerry Mathers, and Tad Stones, who created Darkwing Duck. And so a lot of alumni here who went on to play professional baseball, football, other professional sports or impersonate Freddie Mercury and win an <laughs> Academy Award for it. Jack was drafted out of high school in 1984 in the 20th round by the Red Sox. He said that he had, at this point, a scholarship to go to Stanford, and that at the time it was assumed, if you were a scholarship athlete at Stanford, that you wouldn't get drafted, that teams wouldn't draft you because you wouldn't, you would choose to go to Stanford rather than go to, to the pros. And particularly for a guy getting picked in the 20th round, Jack also said that Boston offered him second round money to make him think about it, but he ended up opting to go to college. And in that first year of college, he was 11-4 and with six complete games. He shared the 1985 Baseball America Freshman of the Year with Ron Wenrick. In 1986, that award was won by his future teammate Robin Ventura, in 1989, it was won by his future teammate, Alex Fernandez. Those three players, Jack, Ventura, and Fernandez, would be picked in the first round. So in four seasons, the White Sox picked those three players, and then the other player was Frank Thomas. So a pretty good run of first-round picks for the White Sox between 1987 and 1990. 
Jack continued his college dominance in his sophomore and junior years. He was a second and then third team All-American. That leads to the fun fact on the back of the card that Jack received national acclaim after leading Stanford University to, co- to the College World Series title in 1987. He holds Stanford's career strikeout record of 337. His six career shutouts tied a 27-year-old Pac-10 standard. So unlike with Ty Griffin, I did not go back and look to see if he still holds those records. But Jack McDowell was a great college pitcher, and this was a great college team, the Stanford Cardinal team. They had 13 major leaguers. Al Osuna, who was mentioned in the Tom Nieto episode, 1988 Olympian Ed Sprague, and Ruben Amaro Jr. Ruben Amaro Jr. appeared on the television program The Goldbergs. (laughs) as well as in professional baseball. The 1987 Stanford team defeated Robin Ventura in the year of his 58-game hitting streak and the Oklahoma State Cowboys in the final of that College World Series. Jack threw seven innings in a 9-5 victory in that final. And at that point, he said, what else is there to prove in the college game? And also earned him a spot in the first round. Hard to pass that up. So for his college career, he went 35-13 and 13 with a 3.85 ERA. And yes, David, this did earn him a spot in the first round. And this way to the clubhouse on the back of the card is that Jack was signed as a first-round draft selection of the White Sox July 29th, 1987 by scout Ed Pebley. Another good scout name. Jack was the fifth selection in that draft. Number one was Ken Griffey Jr., picked by the Mariners. Pretty good pick. Craig Biggio was the 22nd pick. And because we just got into this with Ty Griffin in the 88 draft and the differing fortunes of the draft picks, the number four pick in this draft was Mike Harkey, who was picked by the Cubs. And at number five, Jack McDowell was selected by the White Sox. The year before the Ty Griffin-Robin Ventura incident, the White Sox again pick a slightly better and maybe more f- <laughs> and a more successful at the position player when the cubs needed somebody in the same position but ed pebley not a lot of ed pebley information available he played in the oh. orioles a's and mariners minor league systems retired at age 26 making it as high as triple a And he was a minor league coach and scout for the White Sox and the Cardinals. He signed Jack to a $165,000 bonus. Pretty decent for a 21-year-old coming out of college. I'm not sure what what Jack's major was there. Playing guitar and being cool. (laughs) And baseball. And, And he had a pretty quick ascent into the major leagues. Yeah, looking at the back of the card... 1987, it shows it shows three lines. It says S-A-R period White Sox. It says Birmingham, and it says White Sox, and those are all in 1987. And only 10 games total listed on there, but he went through three levels of professional ball. He was drafted in June, sent to rookie league at Sarasota, pitched in two games, then off to double-A. He, he played in four games, but he had a 7.84 ERA. So I'm not entirely sure what happened there that led him to get called up in September. Well, David, looking at that line, it's got four games, 20 innings pitched, 
17 strikeouts and eight walks. So even though he gave up 18 earned runs in 20 innings, he also had 17 strikeouts. So I'm guessing that they saw that he had the stuff that they needed. And this is a first-round pick. He's 21 years old, maybe bringing him up to a team that at this point the 87 White Sox were out of it. Give the kid a chance and, and see what he can do. I'm not sure, While I'm not sure how that performance deserved a call-up, his performance with the White Sox in the majors was really good. Yeah, so he ended up 3-0. and In 28 innings pitched, he only gave up six earned runs with 15 strikeouts, so a 1.93 ERA. So pretty impressive for a first-year player. In 1987, he wins the College World Series and makes it to the pros. Yeah, that's a good year. That also explains why he's in the traded set. I think maybe the Tops wasn't quite sure if he was going to be an established starter going into 1988. And because he then becomes a part of the team in 1988, they decided to throw him into the traded set later in the 88 season. So going into 1988, is he going to establish himself as the staff ace after this meteoric rise? Not quite. He had a rough go of it in 1988. He went 5-10 and 10 with a 3.97 ERA, so not terrible. And the Sox scored three or fewer runs in more than half of his 26 games. So lots of no decisions in decent performances from Jack. He said that he focused on his performances, not his win-loss record. And there were only a couple games that year where he said he got really knocked around. He also had a recurring condition that led to him missing some time and messing up his mechanics. He said he was born with an arthritic hip, and he had always pitched around that condition. But when he got to the pros, the White Sox tried to change up his motion, and it bothered the hip. So it aggravated that existing condition, and he ended up getting shut down at the end of August to deal with that issue at the end of the 1988 season. Going into 1989, more kind of physical issues. David McDowell ends up making a big mistake in the offseason, not practicing by throwing off a mound. I'm not sure if it was pain or just trying to get some rest. He just said he didn't pitch off of a mound until he got to spring training, and it showed. The White Sox management said they didn't see any progress in him in spring training, and McDowell later acknowledged this mistake and said that he was behind the rest of the pitching staff all throughout the spring. And so he ended up getting sent to AAA. Yeah, didn't do great either. It was 5-6 and six with a 6.13 ERA. The hip seems to be limiting him quite a bit, and he's, quote, all messed up. He said he was throwing way below where he wanted to be. He even spent some time at Rookie League that year trying to get back in form. 1990, he prepares a little bit better in the offseason and really wants to try to challenge for the final spot in the rotation. And there's this article in the Chicago Tribune from spring training 1990 where it talks about the two pitchers who are vying for this last spot on the White Sox rotation, and it's Jack McDowell and Tom Drees. Tom Drees is pretty remarkable in that he pitched back-to-back no-hitters at AAA for the White Sox, and yet didn't earn a spot in the pros. And so you have this quote from Tom Drees, like, what do I have to do? And and he actually, in one season, had three no-hitters and did not get called up to the pros. And in this case, in 1990, Jack 
wins the spot in the rotation over Tom Drees. And coming out of this, he says his goal is to throw 200 innings in the big show. And he did. Drees did end up getting called up at one point. It didn't go well. I think he had a, a 12 ERA or something, but he was a quite good triple A pitcher. So Jack wins that spot in the rotation. It's a big year for the White Sox, the last season at Comiskey Park. And this is a very good team, a very young team. Those new draft picks, as you had mentioned, from the previous four seasons. And there's not a lot expected of them, but they kind of overperform. At this point, yes, you have Frank Thomas, Robin Ventura, Jack McDowell, and Alex Fernandez, all part of this team in 1990. You have Bobby Thigpen saving 57 games, setting a a once-held-by-Dan-Quisenberry record. Unfortunately, they're in the same division as the Oakland A's. And so even though the White Sox go on to win 94 games, they finished nine games behind the A's. They did start a trend that year. And that trend may be culminated this week with the Field of Dreams game. Mm. That game being played in a cornfield in old-timey uniforms is the extreme throwback. But in July of 1990, the White Sox played a turn-back-the-clock game. They were wearing their, their 1917 uniforms. They had a hand-operated scoreboard similar to the Field of Dreams game. They reduced their concessions prices, which is not a thing that was done at the Field of Dreams game, I'm pretty sure. They have the kind of pinstripe old-timey hats, and you have this six-foot-five Jack McDowell on the mound. He went eight innings and gave up five. The White Sox lost that game in extra innings. But it, it started this trend that Major League Baseball later embraced, at least in the uniforms, with all the teams wearing throwback jerseys, maybe not doing the full throwback to uh, hand-operated scoreboards. But I remember it being a, a big deal in Chicago in the, in the news when this was happening, and watching the game was pretty cool. The trend has been toward more technology in baseball, especially in the stadiums. But I thought the Field of Dreams game was really fun to watch and fun to see. And just so striking visually that as I flipped the channel by it, I immediately wanted to stop and watch it. I thought it was really cool to see. I I have a quick question for you, David. How do you refer to the White Sox Stadium now? Uh, I believe my dad has a shirt that says, I still call it Comiskey. I call the <laughs> I call the current stadium guaranteed rate field. Uh, I call it the cell still, <laughs> or I call it Comiskey, uh, or I say I'm going to a White Sox game. Guaranteed rate is pretty bad. Pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, the cell, of course, because the first name change that the stadium received through sponsorship was in the 2000s, and it was where the rights were purchased by U.S. Cellular, a cell company that I don't know still exists. So I'm, I love that. I love your dad's shirt. Maybe we can get a uh, put a picture of that on Twitter at some point. I, I have very fond memories, and maybe my most fond memories of the White Sox are not connected with a player, and we may get into this a little bit later but are connected with that old stadium and going there as a kid. And we would get free tickets for perfect attendance and straight A's. And then my mom would pile us all in the car and we'd go to a day game in this old kind of crusty, nasty stadium. <laughs> um, but I have some fond memories of going to that and some specific games, but really none of Jack McDowell at that stadium. I don't 
quite remember who was pitching most games. You know, I have some some good Dan Pasqua memories, but uh, not necessarily any <laughs> pitching performances. So September 30th of that season, Jack takes the mound to the last game ever at the old Comiskey Park. And he's wearing the current black hats and pinstripes during that final homestand. Along with the move from the old Comiskey Park, the White Sox introduced their new uniform. They had been through a few uniform changes in the 10 years prior from the large collar of the Thad Bosley years to the block letters in the the mid-80s and then the script that Jack is wearing on this card. And the new look is the current look. It's reminiscent of those 1950s go-go White Sox in the 1970s uniforms of Dick Allen and Wilbur Wood. They wore those the new black uniforms in this final series. So along with the move across the street to the new Comiskey Park, they have this new marketing approach. The slogan became, Good Guys Wear Black, and Black Jack McDowell is on the mound in this black hat. And it really has worked out pretty well for them, becoming, I think, a at least nationally recognized team with a uniform that hasn't really changed much in the last 30 years. And Jack looked good in this. Like, the pictures of him, he, at this point, he's got this goatee. He's got the black hat. He's huge. It, it worked out and I think worked well for his image. And so at this closing, this is a big deal. The Chicago White Sox play in Bridgeport, which is the home of the former Richard Daly. The first in attendance at the game was his son, Mayor Richard M. Daly, the former governor, Jim Thompson, who was partially responsible for keeping the White Sox in Chicago. There was a a point where they were possibly going to move out of the city, and it required an act of the legislature to help pay for the new stadium. The Oak Ridge Boys were there. I don't know why. (laughs) Sticks, I get. Sticks is from the south side of Chicago. George Went, John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, Mm. one-time good friend of Ron Kittle, and Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn were all in attendance at this final game to watch Jack McDowell win the White Sox their 93rd game of the season to earn them a spot in the wild card. Oh, no, there was no wild card. Mm. A great year, but no playoffs. And Jack led the team in wins with 14. This year, he perfected his split finger pitch. He credited Carlton Fisk with helping him out a lot, calling a game and moving pitches around and making sure that this young pitcher and this young pitching staff reached that next level. 1991 is a big year for the White Sox, and Jack continues his ascent. He was the opening day starter away at Baltimore. He pitches a complete game, and the White Sox get a win. He got a complete game in his second game as well. And then there's a a little bit of a blip in the first game at the new Comiskey Park. The White Sox lost 16 to nothing (laughs) in the first game against the Tigers. And so the players are joking that the new stadium might be cursed. The next day, according to Jack, they went out to second base and they burned Scott Radinsky's jersey at second base to appease the baseball gods for leaving the old park. Did it work? They had a good season. They finished 11 games over 500 at home. They finished only one game over 500 on the road, and they ended up finishing in second in the AL West to the Twins, who would go on to win the World Series. But Jack ends up 17-10, and 10, leads the league with 15 complete games, and makes his first All-Star game. 
pretty good year for him. And around this time, he's also getting his music career moving. Mm. This was the best part of the research for this episode, David, was getting to look through some of Jack McDowell's various bands and songs. It really took me back. Took you back to a time when wearing a vest over a white t-shirt was a good look? Yes. (laughs) There's this pinnacle card. I don't know what year this is. Maybe 92 or 93. It has Jack playing an, an acoustic guitar, wearing a very flowery vest if you said this is richard marx or this is michael w smith (laughs) uh it's very could be either of them back in that era yeah and jack's music and his musical tastes are pretty alternative college radio friendly and yet this look is very yeah like you said michael w smith it he doesn't look like a grunge rocker here He's playing an acoustic yeah, I mean, guitar. Yeah, he well, he looks like the grunge rockers playing Unplugged. You know, this is the ballad. I do really like the 12-string guitar that he's playing. And I think that that fits the kind of jangly, jangle pop of his music. His band, his first band is called View. It was, I think, all capital letters with periods in between each letter. You know, like another band of that time that maybe... <laughs> he was copying his, his yeah. music is very similar to rem david you had prepared me by texting me that the it had a, a sound like rem but i completely missed that text but within 10 seconds of listening to this track i asked myself was this an rem song and that's because the guitar sound is identical the, so the song is called prodigal it is from the record extend agenda and it sounds very much like the song Radio Free Europe, which I think was on Murmur. Yeah, it's very R.E.M. We'll play it here. We'll play a little out here. And McDowell's quoted in the Chicago Tribune talking about his music. He said, nothing heavy, but a couple of those songs relate to my downs in baseball. It did make me just go listen to R.E.M. instead. <laughs> and really, Jack's influences are also some of my favorites. He said he was influenced by The Replacements and R.E.M. and by Morrissey's songwriting. I did not dig too much into Jack's lyrics. Can't say how similar they are to Morrissey's. We'll leave that up to the listener. Can someone please do a a textual analysis here comparing the song Prodigal with please, please, please let me get what I want. But hey, the band was asked to tour with the Smithereens. And the Smithereens were big baseball fans. Do you remember any songs by the Smithereens? I had to look it up. It was uh, Girl Like You was the the big one. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Uh, But kind of a forgettable 90s band sorry don't don't at me about that I... <laughs> hot takes hot, hot takes, takes the smithereens were forgettable it, it took two minutes of listening to the song girl like you for me to remember what the song was <laughs> i was thinking of that is it edwin edwin collins girl like you 
Okay. Uh, oh yeah, I do know that. Is that were there two songs called "A Girl Never Like You"? Never been a fool like you before. Yeah, I don't think that's "Girl Like You." Okay, whatever, that's fine. I don't um, think so. This, but we'll see. So we can cut all of this, but the Smithereens one was the "Just to Win the Win Love, a girl, like love a Girl you. Like Did It Did It Did It." Did it. Yep, it's fine. A girl like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll cut that. <laughs> cut that. <laughs> We'll loop that. Or I may leave a, we'll I may leave a, a little bit. Leave all of it. David, it looks like from the discography that this band didn't last that long. Yeah, so they were asked on this tour with the Smithereens. Their van broke down, so they rented a moving truck to drive across the country. The baseball lifestyle probably doesn't lend itself to touring. One of the members of the band was Wayne Edwards, who was a White Sox reliever. He was sent down to AAA and the White Sox AAA team was in Vancouver. So difficult to schedule practices and, and gigs. <laughs> Their bass player was Lee Plamel, who was a Cardinals minor leaguer. So the band, it didn't last too long. The baseball lives kind of got in the way. But Jack would keep playing under the name Stick Figure. This song is called Care. It's fine. You can see the progression, so it's a little less copying of R.E.M. It's a little bit more Gin Blossoms. Jack would continue to play with Stick Figure into the 2000s. He would later talk about his influences, and they would expand. He would talk about being a fan of Wilco and Death Cab for Cutie and and expanding his musical horizons. I appreciate that he he had pretty good taste. Yeah, I should be more generous and not say copying, but... But having a sound like... I don't think it's unfair to say copying. I think that Jack himself admitted to Peter Buck that he was copying R.E.M. They were friends. He moved in musical circles along with his baseball circles. And back on the field, he became a 20-game winner in 1992. And this is the first time that a White Sox pitcher did this since Lamar Hoyt in 1983. Jack ends up finishing second in the Cy Young voting... The Sox, again, are over 500, not really challenging for the playoffs. They end up finishing third in the division. But then in 1993, we reach peak Jack McDowell. And peak moment of my youth baseball fandom here in 1993. Many of those young players are reaching their potential. Jack, before the season, again goes to arbitration and won his requested salary. He was awarded a $4 million contract. This is a big deal. He was one of the highest paid pitchers in baseball. This 1993 White Sox team, you have Frank Thomas hitting 41 home runs and winning an MVP. And this is kind of unheard of. That was the most home runs that anyone had ever hit for the White Sox. And Jack McDowell is there, in my mind, is a little bit overshadowed by the offensive prowess of a guy like Frank Thomas and Robin Ventura on on the offensive side. Jack makes his third All-Star game. He's the ace of this White Sox team. And at 27, he's one of the older members of the pitching staff. Some of the other starters, Alex Fernandez and Wilson Alvarez, were 23 years old. Jason Beret was 22. And the White Sox really rode that pitching staff to a an easy 
division championship. So they end up going to the playoffs for the first time in 10 years. And McDowell goes 22-10 and 10 with 10 complete games, four of them shutouts, and a 3.37 ERA to win the Cy Young. But David, you have some fiery hot takes about this. He won the Cy Young because he won 22 games. He was the only 20-game winner in the American League, and he played for a pretty dominant team that won their division. Kevin Apier had 9.4 wins above replacement that year, and he finished third after Jack and Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson had 300-plus strikeouts, led the league in strikeouts, but Kevin Apier was the best pitcher. He just didn't quite have the stats and wasn't on a team that won their division. Even Jack's teammates, Alex Fernandez, Wilson Alvarez, had better ERAs, better ERA+, and higher wins above replacement. Jack wasn't in the top 10 even in wins above replacement that year. But again, we're looking at it from a 2021 standpoint. From a 1993 standpoint, he got 21 of 28 first place votes. They have votes I do not. I, as a 13-year-old, probably also would have looked at 22 wins and said, Jack McDowell, Cy Young winner. And I, it's not like I found articles saying he was undeserving. I just think it, looking at it from the standpoint that we sometimes look at things, it is slightly not deserved. We'll open up a comment thread on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast, so all of you listeners can come at David for this fiery hot take, arguing the 1993 Cy Young. The playoffs did not go as planned for 13-year-old me. Probably also didn't go as Jack planned them out in his brain. Against the defending champ, Blue Jays, he pitched seven innings and gave up seven runs in a game one loss at home. The Sox then lost game two, uh, also at home, and then won two at the Sky Dome. So the pull even in the series. Game five is Jack again, and he gave up three runs in two innings and was pulled. And the White Sox ended up losing that game. A little controversy in this one, David, because later it was said that Jack was tipping his pitches in some way to the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays denied this. Whatever happened, Jack was not effective in the playoffs. He gave up 18 hits in 10 innings, and the White Sox got bumped from the playoffs in the next game, in Game 6. He's knocked out of the playoffs, and then David knocked out in a bar fight. What is going on? Jack hung out with a, with a musical crowd, and sometimes that, that leads to some, uh, some incidents at bars. And at 4.15 a.m. in New Orleans, nothing good happens at 4.15 a.m. Nope. No, sir. <laughs> He was hanging out with his musician friend, Eddie, Vetter, (laughs) and Mr. Vetter allegedly spit on someone at a bar. A ruckus ensued, and according to the newspaper, a waiter, James Gorman, said Vetter started the incident. McDowell, described by Vetter as a close friend, was said to have become involved when he grabbed Gorman, and the two went tumbling into the street. According to Anthony Martinez, a bouncer at the Blue Crystal nightclub, McDowell jumped up and I just took the necessary action. I knocked him out. He hit his head on the wheel of a Jeep. (laughs) (laughs) You don't normally get quotes from the bouncer. They normally refer that to to management and they say no comment. Good quote. (laughs) I think they did the right thing because he he told the story perfectly. (laughs) Uh, Jack got a split lip some scalp lacerations, and was knocked out. 
Eddie Vedder was arrested for public drunkenness and disturbing the peace and was released after paying $600. McDowell was treated for his wounds and released from medical care. And I don't know that he was actually punished for this in any way, aside from the embarrassment of showing up and as getting knocked out in a New York Times article. Yeah, kind of a bummer, but he ends up at least... uh getting some financial reward, not for this fight, but for his performance on the field. In 1994, he again goes to arbitration. And this is interesting, the, the way that arbitration worked. It, if you were beyond three years of professional playing time, but had less than six years and were out of a contract, you would go to arbitration and an arbitrator would decide between two amounts, the amount that the team wanted to pay you and the amount that you wanted to be paid. Jack won this arbitration once, and he lost twice. In this case, in 1994, he asked for $6.5 million and was given $5.3 million. While that was not as much as he asked for, it was the record at the time for a salary arbitration. And the Cy Young winner going to salary arbitration is kind of odd. He was never offered a long-term contract by the White Sox. They just kept going every year straight to arbitration and signing one-year deals. Jack wasn't sure why. He said he maybe regretted saying some things publicly about his contract situation throughout his career, but the White Sox just never wanted to sign him to a long-term deal. Kind of strange. I mean, he's still pitching well. He ended up 10-9 and that year, had a 125 ERA+, and things are going really well for the White Sox until the strike happens. Through 113 games, the White Sox were in first place. The players weren't sure what was going to happen with the work stoppage. Jack said he didn't know if it would last a couple weeks, and so they really wanted to finish in first place whenever the work stoppage happened. So they hustled up to the strike. Jack pitched three complete games in a row, and they were up one game at 67 and 46 in the AL Central. But unlike the 1981 season, after this work stoppage, the season didn't restart. The rest of the season is canceled, including the playoffs and the World Series. And after that season, some of the pieces break up, including Jack. He is traded to the Yankees for Lyle Mouton and a player to be named later. The player to be named later never made it to the majors. Lyle Mouton played a couple seasons, wasn't a starter for the White Sox really consistently. And Jack wasn't sure why this happened. He said he didn't want to leave. He liked Chicago. But with the contract situation and the White Sox cutting costs, they made a decision and moved Jack along a year after making the playoffs and winning the Cy Young Award. Ends up joining a pretty good Yankees team and pitches well. Had an up and down time in New York, to say the least. We'll get into some of the ups and downs. But 15 and 10, 3.93 ERA that first season in 1995, eighth in the American League in wins and strikeouts and led the league in complete games. You referenced some downtimes. On July 18th, there was a doubleheader at Yankee Stadium against the White Sox. The White Sox win the first game. Jack starts the second game. He gave up nine runs to his old team. So after a long day of watching some bad baseball, Yankees fans weren't happy about it, and they started booing Jack as he was pulled from the game, and he gave a one-fingered salute to the home crowd. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to go over well. 
the response from the team, he was fined $5,000. The response from the press, the headline the next day said, Jack Ass. Pretty good. <laughs> That's good. And it led to Jack being immortalized in a song, not by his own band, but by another band called The Baseball Project. And this band includes Peter Buck, Mike Mills from R.E.M., members of Young Fresh Fellows and the Dream Syndicate. And this is a super group that writes songs about baseball players. I don't remember if we referenced it in the Pasquale Perez episode, but they had a song about Pasquale. They had a record called Frozen Ropes and Dying Quails, and that had a song called The Yankee Flipper that was about this incident. In the song, it implies that Jack's bad mood that day and bad pitching performance was due in part to a hangover incurred from drinking with R.E.M. after their show at Madison Square Garden. And includes the lines, For a night on the town with Mike Mills, you get hit pretty hard. (laughs) And then they say, I applauded his gesture, yet at the same time wondered if my pals and I had played some small part in his bad day. Jack said that the incident drinking with R.E.M. did occur, but it wasn't the night before this game. Well, that's good that R.E.M. is absolved then from this notorious incident in Jack McDowell, making him hated by Yankees fans in some ways to this day. Yes, there was an article that referred to him as hated ex-Yankee Jack McDowell, and I thought that was very (laughs) funny because this team... Aside from this July 18th incident, they went on to make the playoffs for the first time since 1981. So they had some rough times, but they finished second in the AL East, won the wild card. Unfortunately, maybe leading more to that hated ex-Yankee moniker, Jack was involved in a couple losses in the ALDS against Seattle. The Yankees took a 2-0 lead in this series against Seattle, and then Jack got a start in Game 3, giving up five runs in a loss. The Yankees lost game four, and then in game five, Jack comes in in relief. An odd position for him, but he comes in in the 10th inning of the deciding game five with the game tied 4-4. Sadly, it was not meant to be for Jack. In the 11th, the Yankees took the lead, but Jack gives up a single to his former teammate Joey Cora, a single to Ken Griffey Jr., and then a double to Edgar Martinez in the bottom of the 11th to end the game in the series. So that ends the playoff run for the Yankees. Jack ends up a free agent after the 1995 season and signs with Cleveland. He ends up going 13-9 and in 1996 with an ERA over 5. 1997, he's injured and limited to only 8 games. And then 1998 and 99... He is with Anaheim, but still has some injury issues, only pitches in 18 games, and then ends up released in 1999. So that ends up closing the book on Jack McDowell's career. 127 and 87 record with a 3.85 ERA. And 62 complete games. 
which is pretty impressive. He started 275 games in his career. More than 20% of his starts were complete games. He was a workhorse, particularly for the White Sox. He pitched 250-plus innings three seasons in a row. And this is just kind of unheard of now. Since 2010, only two players have hit 250 innings pitched at all. Where is he now? He spent some time out of baseball playing music. He called it his transition phase. Playing music, playing shows, recording records with stick figure. He has a wife and five kids. He coached his kids in Little League and into high school in the San Diego area. And then he came back to professional baseball. He was a minor league manager in the Dodgers system in 2014 and 15. And then he moved into the college ranks and coached at Division II Queens University Charlotte, starting up their baseball program in 2018. And now he's coaching for the wonderfully named Burlington Sock Puppets, <laughs> who play in the Appalachian League, which is an MLB-affiliated summer collegiate league. Unfortunately, this team went 18-34 and 34 this season, but at least they have fantastic merchandise with little sock puppets on it. At the beginning of the show, when you know, the card was suggested by your friend Adam, he suggested that you might have some great memories of Jack McDowell and of this great Sox teams that he was a part of. So now in digging back through his history, how are you feeling about it now? I don't have many specific memories of Jack McDowell. I remember him on the mound. I have specific memories of Frank Thomas at the plate and thinking he's going to hit a home run. And he's going to do something spectacular. And with Jack McDowell, I don't have that feeling that this is a guy who's going to shut down the opposition. You know, I don't, I don't have that dominant memory of Jack McDowell. From 1990 to 94, which was Jack's last season with the White Sox, this team went 428 and 333. That's a 56% winning percentage. On average, that's a 91-win team. And Jack was one of the most consistent players in those five seasons. He had the second most innings in baseball after Greg Maddox, the most complete games, the third most wins with 83 behind only Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin. He was ninth in strikeouts in that time. So those White Sox teams were on pace to win 91 games a season. And yet, all they had to show for it was two wins in the 1993 ALCS and honestly, I don't even remember those wins. I remember that they lost to the Blue Jays. That's all I remember. And Jack McDowell was intense and one of the faces of this franchise and very effective, but maybe not spectacular. I was recently looking through a couple boxes of baseball cards, of course, trying to pull out Cubs for one million Cubs project. And the last year that I have cards was 1993. So that doesn't even reflect the 1993 season. Those show the 1992 stats on them. So I don't even have any Jack McDowell cards that talk about his great season. I was 13 years old, moving into being interested in other things, in music and going to high school and other activities. And so that 1993 White Sox team and that loss in the playoffs was also kind of a, I guess, looking back, uh, the end of my real intense baseball fandom. And on this card, we have this this young guy who's about to make it and about to start a band and grow a goatee, about to win a Cy Young, and this team that's about to have this, this series of draft selections that sets them up for success, and nothing much. And as a White Sox fan, 
I never expected the White Sox to win the World Series. And this was the peak, really, of my White Sox formative years. It's uh, understandable why it would happen. And then, of course, the final factor is that getting into the 90s, now you have both Chicago teams having World Series futility that had had run up into the 80, 90, 100 years. So understandable why you might not have had high hopes for that 93 team. Well, and it's it's also funny because I my mom watches every White Sox game. Like, she turns the TV on, puts the White Sox on, reads a book while the White Sox game is on. And has for years. And so I watched all of these games. And maybe it's just the, like, sheer ma- like, the mass of White Sox baseball that I have consumed in my lifetime that I don't have a specific of Jack McDowell. What really maybe did get me here was the end of the old Comiskey Park and that that was the old cathedral of baseball that I remember as a kid and that has such uh, holds such a place in my heart that that I connect that with with Jack McDowell and him, you know, pitching in that turn back the clock game that I remember so vividly watching on TV. But but yeah, thank you, Adam. I I look forward to Adam visiting Chicago and we can go see a White Sox or Cubs game. Yes, at Guaranteed Rate Stadium <laughs> or at what will, I'm sure, be known in the future as... Ricketts Field. Uh, Rick, yeah, Ricketts <laughs> Complex Incorporated Field. Yes. But all the same, thank you again to Adam. Thank you to you at home. And if you have a black 12-string Takamine guitar, we'd love for you to cut a demo and send it to us on Twitter at tops 1988 Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.